I worked on the first Swift app at Google. I said, I'll take the offer as long as you let me do Swift. The director that was interviewing me said, I don't know what that is, but okay. I come to Google and I'm fumbling to get it set up. So I sent an email out to the iOS dev group in Google. I said, hey, you know, I'm new. Anyone have any pointers? And immediately I'm bombarded. Oh, we're not allowed to do Swift here. You can't do that. Don't do that. Two people took me out to lunch to tell me that I'm doing the wrong thing and don't ever try. And thanks for tuning to the Google's Gonna Build podcast, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, engineers, product managers, whoever builds great products about how they built this. Yeah, it's like how I built this light with the less famous people. <laughs> that's, that's what we are. I'm your host, Ilya Bezdilov. And I'm Arnab Deka. Arnab and I are co-founders of Metacast. Metacast is a new podcast app. It is a powerful tool that helps get the most out of podcasts because we have transcripts that you can bookmark, you can read them, you can skim. It's really awesome. We've been using it for a few months. So go to metacast.app and download the app for iOS or Android and uh, give it a try. It's currently in open beta. It's awesome, I promise. We also build in public and document our journey of building the app and our company. If you want to follow along, we have a newsletter. You can find all the links in the show notes of this episode. On Reddit, we have a subreddit going on at r slash metacast app. So if you use the app or you have feedback for us, please leave us a post in there. Uh, the guest of today's episode is Hendrik Kirk. Henry is a former engineer and manager at Google and Amazon. He is a founder of a studio init software development company. On this episode, we talked about Google's layoffs and how they became a blessing in disguise for Henry to start doing his own thing when he was laid off in January 2023. We talked about viral LinkedIn posts that brought him business. I found that part to be pretty insightful. We talked about development of mobile apps with cross-platform frameworks like Flutter and React Native versus using native languages like Swift and Kotlin and the infamous 30% Apple tax in app purchases made on iOS devices, which Henry has a contrarian opinion on. I really enjoyed that part too. And finally, we talked about the devaluation of software, which is again caused primarily by Apple by encouraging developers to set a 99 cent price on their software. Enjoy the episode. If you like it, please leave us a review. Rate us five stars. Or send us a note at hello at buildersgonnabuild.com. Without further ado, here is Henry Kirk. Hey, Henry, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the show. So to get started, can you tell us a bit about yourself and yeah, what you're up to do these days? Sure. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me. To be honest, this is actually my first podcast, which is cool. I've done my own, but it's actually pretty exciting to be on someone else's. So thank you for deciding to have me on here. So hopefully it'll be valuable for your uh, viewers. So who am I? I'm Henry Kirk. I uh, am uh, one of the partners at a company called Studio Knit. Why is that important? Well, Studio Knit was started after Google had laid off my team back in uh, January 2023. So I had uh, been at Google for about eight years, Amazon prior to that, a bunch of startups prior to that. So when um, we got the layoff notice, they basically cut my whole org minus a couple people. So, you know, I was bummed out for a little bit, but I had immediately started to connect with my uh, other colleagues and a bunch of us like didn't really want to go back to the corporate world. We liked working with each other. So we basically like decided to put together a little company. Couldn't think of a good startup to work on. That was the original idea. So then we said, hey, a lot of the work we did inside of Google was special projects and like very zero to one work. So we said, hey, let's put together a digital product studio. So a couple weeks later, we figured it out and called it Studio Init. 
And here we are well over a year later and we're still hanging in there. So things are looking good. <laughs> yeah, cool. So since you started with layoffs, I remember one of your posts on LinkedIn went really viral. How many views did that post get? That like I think it's over a million, right? <laughs> so to be honest, I've actually went viral twice. So the first time it went viral on LinkedIn was, I think it was like February 6th or something like that. It was a few weeks after the layoffs. Layoffs were January 20th. So a few weeks later, when we decided to do the studio, I had said, well, hey, let's like MVP this with a LinkedIn post and see if anyone will be willing to hire us. I actually wrote about it recently. And I just put together, you know, hey, this is what we're doing. Is anyone willing to introduce us? And that went viral. That was like 2.6 million views. I think like 10,000 comments, 10,000 likes and like almost a thousand comments. It was pretty crazy. Ended up getting like months worth of meetings out of it and met a lot of really cool people. And that seeded the business for the first several months, which was great. Then on the anniversary of the layoff, I made another post and it was kind of like my whole personal goal when I got laid off was not to see this as a bad thing, right? Because most people are like, I got laid off. I'm not good enough. I've peaked, never been able to do it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to turn this into a good thing. And so I've been preaching that since I got laid off, that I will make sure that whatever happens to me next, like it's going to be the greatest thing ever. And this was a good thing. So what I did was, is I kind of reframed and rewrote the layoff email that I got. Instead of making it for some random HR person, I wrote an email that assumed our two me telling me that it was time for me to move on, that I've outgrown Google and I was ready to go out my own and they were going to give me a severance to see the next thing I was doing. I wrote it really just to reframe again that like you can turn these negative things into a positive one. And that went insanely viral. That was like 5.8 million views. That was like 50 something thousand likes, at least a thousand comments on there. Ended up getting some business out of it, believe it or not. <laughs> and it was just so wild. Like, and you know what's funny is that people were saying it was like a master class in like empathy and how, you know, leadership and stuff like that. I didn't intend it to be that, but like, all right, cool. I'll take it for that. But my point is that it's been unfortunate that so many people are laid off. Big tech or just tech in general is going through this like very strange recession in our own sense, right? Usually technology is like always growing. So getting laid off, you know, I just wanted to tell people that like, it's not a bad thing. You can turn this around. It could be a good thing. And so I wrote it and it just went crazy viral. So oddly enough, it's really helped the studio get brand recognition, so to speak, because we ended up getting some work out of this most recent post, which is interesting. It just goes to show that there's really no secret into going viral or like doing these like social media, right? It's what I've learned is that as long as you deliver valuable content, it doesn't really matter what engagement you get. At the end of the day, you're going to get attention out of it. That's what you're really trying to do. So like, I don't try to game anything. I just write whatever I think would be valuable. And so I was just sharing that and it went pretty crazy. So yeah, it's wild. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that the post that went viral for me, I didn't have that level of your success. I think my most viral post was just over a million or just under a million. Uh, but it was about bashing Google's culture. Uh, oh. and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was more about like how I left and why. Wasn't there one about comparing Google and Amazon, uh, like different cultures that went pretty wide too? There was another one that went more viral <laughs> after that one. But yeah, basically it's like what I realized and people were writing to me in uh, DMs and also in comments is that there are many people in those companies. I don't know if it's most, but certainly a big percentage who actually wish to leave, but could never summon the courage or they have like golden handcuffs or obligations and they just stay there. And then they see this as an inspiration that somebody else has left or somebody got laid off, but they didn't take it as like, oh my God, sky is falling. It's more like, 
oh my God, uh, I'm free now. <laughs> so, and they also gave me money to start the next thing. And that really inspires people. Because think about those posts, right? It's not like people get some knowledge out of it. I think it's all emotional that they get from those most viral posts from like regular folks like us, not Tim Ferriss level celebrities, right? Yeah, that's right. And like, we've never had these kind of layoffs before, right? So nobody really knows how to react to them. Some people just go and try to get other jobs. And, you know, it's sad that they've struggles. Like, I've always been entrepreneurial. Like the reason I joined Amazon and Google is because most of my startups that I had failed. And I wanted to learn what I was doing wrong. Oddly enough, it was me, but you know, I've kind of improved over the years. So now I'm ready to put all of the skills that I've learned in big tech to work. Hopefully I'll be much more successful than I was earlier in my career. So it's like, we're just normal people. And so when we hit these things and we share our experiences and be like, hey, like it's really not so bad and it's okay to take risks. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, it's great. I talked to a bunch of people now that would love to leave big tech, but they're like, but the salary is too great for me to leave. I'm like, okay, think about it. What five or 10 years are going to be more in this company? Like, you're going to regret it. I'm curious about both of you. What do you think about why these layoffs are happening? And I feel like we're not even peaking there. I feel like the last few years, there's been a few huge shifts in the industry. There's the whole LLM and AI related stuff. Twitter, I think some of that also led to this. But I feel like a lot of companies are basically taking a look. Like if we cut 5% off, is there any difference to what revenue we're making or the future of the company? And there isn't. And it keeps going on and on. And I think we're going to see a substantial shift in this. So it's not the AI coming and taking all our jobs all at once is not going to happen all at once. But it's, I think, over a 10-year period, companies of these Google and Amazon size might be half of what they had and still basically keep doing what they're doing. I think that there's a whole lot of reasons why this has been happening. So it's everything from leaders trying to create shareholder value. It's the whole, especially in big tech, getting promoted as a leader. The only way you can do that, at least that the common like assumption is, is that you do this by building empires below you. And the more people you have, the more important you must be, rather than actually like, what are you delivering and what's valuable? There's so many things wrong with why this happened. I'll go into a couple of things that I think are interesting. So I've always been the big believer that small teams can execute better. And so building an empire, you'll never get stuff done. There's just too many cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. So what I tend to think is like, you want to have small, nimble teams, but how do you become a big director or senior director, VP of a company? You need to have tons of people underneath you. So they created this weird incentive system. So instead of it being actually based off of like, what are you producing, what value you're creating? It's like, oh, look, they have like a thousand people. Let's promote them. There's a couple huge shifts that I think I saw. So first off, Elon Musk taking over Twitter and going from what, 7,000 people to like a thousand people. And everybody said Twitter is going to fall apart. It didn't really break and fall apart. They stumbled a little bit, but they got it together. Just goes to show that like, what were those other people really doing? Did they really need them? No. Okay. Some can argue that there's holes in their operation, probably, but you know, they didn't need all those people. Technically, I think there have been problems, but it's not like the whole thing fell apart. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's still there. You can go to twitter.com or x.com and it still works. I think that started to change some folks' perception. Now, why did Google lay people off? The first thing I'll say is that Apple has not laid anyone off. Now, why is that? Because Apple did not go on a hiring spree over the last few years. Like Tim Cook is a fantastic operator. The core employees, if you're an employee at Apple, nobody's scared that they're going to get laid off. All my friends, they're like, yeah, it's great. We were just operating the same. 
Yeah, I don't know why companies would go on a hiring spree during the last few years. I just think that's strange. Like some say that they were going crazy hiring because they were trying to take talent, assuming that this growth would continue to happen. But I didn't even think it would last long. Eventually, like it made no sense. So I'm not really sure why that happened. And why did Google have all the layoffs? Because they overhired. And then what happened is, is they couldn't find enough people that were like really great at what they did. So they reduced the hiring bar, in my opinion. And then you ended up with a whole bunch of people that technically would have never passed the Google interview a few years prior. I know this. I was a manager. I interviewed hundreds of people for my team of roughly 30. And I'd done external interviews and internal interviews. I saw it. It's unfortunate. The culture changed along the way. They had to let people go right that ship. However, I think they did it the wrong way because they let a lot of really good people go. We saw this in a lot of other companies as well. They just overhired. Executives were not thinking right. I have a lot of opinions on this, but I think that running a company is hard, right? And like the leader is accountable at the end of the day. And so they made poor decisions and it impacted people's lives. And so at the end of the day, those leaders should be held accountable and they're not. That's a big problem. What do they care laying all these people off? But they increase the shareholders' uh, profits. Of course, yeah. So they're going to get rewards for that, yeah. Yeah, they're going to get rewards. And it's kind of crazy because look at all of the, one can say, all this craziness with Gemini the last couple of days. And Google has always struggled getting products out the door. I remember a few years ago, there was an internal dog food, you know, we'd call it like testing stuff. And it was basically what was Bard or Gemini or whatever. It was like an internal chatbot. And it something leaked where one of the product managers was saying that he was a real person and he was like, he fell in love with it or something like that. It was some crazy story, right? They had that there and they didn't see what the value was to turn it into a product. And then, of course, OpenAI comes out with ChatGPT. And next thing you know, they like cobble together Bard, which I still don't understand the name. Then they go and replace it with Gemini, not even a year later. And then they have another false start with Gemini and this thing. It's just like Google is clearly struggling with execution of product and they're very good at inventing things. So I know I'm going on a tangent on Google here, but like the uh, layoffs are caused by poor leadership is at the end of the day. It's like executives are out of touch with the real world and their incentives are aligned poorly. That's really what it is. My version of the answer to this question, I mean, obviously I spent less time than you at Google. I only spent about three years and I joined after the pandemic started. So I joined in June, 2020 and I joined from Amazon, from AWS and I joined GCP. My first perception was, wow, the quality bar of people seemed to be lower at Google. That's what I felt. I felt like there was more entitlement and I genuinely felt like Google was very inefficient compared to Amazon. After the first few weeks, I was like, wow, this is very different. And I wonder if it's gonna like survive in the long term. Even before they started firing people, I felt like Google is becoming the IBM of the internet age, sliding into, into relevance over time. Yeah, and then layoffs happened and all that. And I just wasn't surprised because like one of the things that really puzzled me at Google is just how short-term oriented leadership thinking is. And I worked in uh, enterprise products. Uh, I first worked on GCP and then I worked on Google Maps API stuff. People want very quick returns, but very quick returns don't happen in that space. It's not like B2C where you just push the thing out and it gets adopted by millions of users right away. The adoption cycle can be months and quarters and even years for those big companies. And then you have to nurture them for years. But instead, Google, they want quick returns, they shift kind of half-assed products, and they deprecate them because they don't work. 
but that was also because they shipped them prematurely and because they expected very quick returns. There is no that long-term thinking, in my opinion, at least on the enterprise side at Google. And that's why I always felt like it's not going to be able to compete with folks like AWS or Microsoft on the cloud side. But also, I haven't really had a glimpse into the consumer side, but just overall, my impression of Google was like, this is not the company that's going to survive the next 20 years, probably. At least not being kind of the crown jewel of the internet era. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you really nailed it. It was super fun when I joined. In fact, to decide whether I was going to take my offer, I watched the movie The Intern, if you remember. And when I got there, that's what it was like. It was incredible to work for. It was just great. And I worked my butt off because I felt grateful to have the opportunity to be in an environment like that. And it really changed. And it's sad. But you're right, we were very slow to get things out the door. It was always tons of red tape everywhere. I got really good at getting through the red tape, which is pretty sad. So we were able to ship stuff. The deprecating things when they don't hit a billion users by not investing it is a big problem. One of the things when I left, the first, I will not build stuff on GCP. I build stuff on AWS because they don't change and deprecate things as often as Google does. When I first started doing some stuff with AutoML on GCP on the side on personal projects, they changed it to like Vertex AI like a year later. And it was just like getting the hang of things. Yeah, it was kind of similar, but like they didn't need to go and do that. It just made no sense. I've seen it way too much, especially with Firebase over the years. You know, I supported mobile apps at Google on iOS and Android, and we had to work with the Firebase team a lot, and they were always changing the APIs, even though they had this ridiculous council of API review where it would take you like eight weeks just to get a one-line change through. But they're constantly changing things, and it made maintenance really hard. So, of course, developers were getting frustrated with it. I totally agree with you, Ilya. It's just been broken, and it's sad that things have changed because it used to be the greatest. It was seriously a great company to work for. Yeah. Let's shift gears a little bit since you mentioned mobile apps because that's your specialty. Maybe let's dive uh, straight there because we are building a podcast app for both iOS and Android. It's a consumer app that's built actually almost entirely using Google's products. And uh, you just mentioned Firebase. So far, we have not seen any breaking changes. Well, it is not yet, I think. I think last big one was Dynamic Links. They deprecated that. But the core products that we use, they haven't changed for a while. Yeah. I'm curious to hear your opinion of... Actually, let me take a step back. Because we are also using Flutter. Because when we started, it was just the two of us. Arnab was the only one coding. So we had no time and uh, resources to building two apps in uh, Swift and, and Kotlin. So we just uh, chose Flutter. What is your take on using cross-platform languages for app development? Great question. So let me ask you this before I answer it. What's your monetization strategy for your podcasting app? Uh, subscriptions subscription, like a monthly subscription. Okay. Yeah. Basically, it's a freemium model. It'll be free tier with limited functionality. And then if you want to get more access to other features, then you have to pay a monthly subscription. We also have ads in the free version. Okay. Who's your like target audience for this? So we are looking at the more sophisticated podcast listeners who listen to a lot of podcasts, who need uh, tools. Basically, they need the podcast. It's like a tool that helps them triage all of that sort of barrage of podcasts that be being released every day so they can pick and choose what they actually want to listen. And because our app has transcripts, so we are building the functionality such that you can use it to extract knowledge from podcasts. Listen to audio, but you can uh, bookmark things in transcript. You can share, you can copy stuff. So you can always go back to the things that you're like, oh, this was interesting. But like, where was it? 
it in this four and a half hour episode. So we have the search, we have the bookmarking, we have the sharing that helps you really navigate audio non-linearly. That's our sort of uh, differentiation point. Yeah, the niche would be like people who really need to use that information from podcasts, like researchers, maybe technology learners, people preparing for interviews, researching about companies, history, science, that sort of like nerds in a good way, right? Like I'm a nerd myself. So. Yeah, we were thinking about like, like top 1% of the podcast listeners who really get most of their knowledge from audio. Okay, cool. Gotcha. And prior to you guys building this, did you guys have any native app development experience or Flutter or anything like that? We didn't have any app development experience. We were all backend developers. Well, I guess it's not entirely true because, Arnab, you were a tech lead, a principal at AWS who built AWS mobile app. And uh, I was working on the mobile SDK for Google Maps. But like we haven't really built an app with our own hands. <laughs> yeah, I was more of the principal engineer in the space. There was a team that was building the mobile app and I was guiding them, but I didn't know any of the how it was built, yeah, so. Okay, what is my opinion on cross-platform? It really depends on what your use case is, who your audience is, and long-term maintenance. Like, is it gonna be a successful app over time? So I'll give you a couple examples. So I'm asking a lot of these like probing questions to see where you're at. If you have existing experience in the mobile space in one or the other, I would say just go for that. We all know that, to be honest, Apple has a much better ecosystem and people are more willing to pay on Apple's ecosystem than anything else. So if I were to say, what's the best platform to dive into and build something quickly and get it out the door, I would always pick iOS, unless you're doing something like we're working on a project now where it's like for essentially the Google's like next billion users, we called it, where it's like in emerging markets where they only have access to like $100 Android phones. And so that's a different, that would be an Android first. Nobody has iPhones there, so you don't even consider it. So my opinion is that you build the platform for who your users are and what you're trying to accomplish. So if you're a startup and you've never done it before, I would pick one or the other. Let me ask you this. When you're going through the Flutter and you're going on it and you're launching an Android and you're launching for iOS, you probably hit some platform level issues that you took you quite some time to figure out, I would guess, right? With the bridging that you have to do or... There were a couple audio broke one of the packages, like it wasn't working on Android, but it was working fine on iOS. And now we have actually the opposite problem. Some of the functionality in audio works on Android, doesn't work on iOS. Right, and that slows you down. So let's say you don't have any users yet, right? And you're trying to like get something out the door. Having to be experts in both platforms plus that cross-platform technology can make it a big pain, especially if the bridging doesn't work or these third-party libraries are not well-maintained and you're putting it all together. It's your job or your goal when you have this idea to get something out is to get it in the market and then determine whether users are gonna wanna use it, get their feedback and build upon it. I always have drawn more towards just doing it on iOS. And if it's successful, I will then move it to Android. Now, at that point, I'll decide, do I want to go cross-platform or not? Depending on the app, if it's some simple business app, maybe Flutter or React Native or something will work really well. But I would be willing to bet if you had a fairly complicated app or something cool, which has like interesting layout and you want to keep it designed to the platform, you're going to struggle trying to get it right on both. Why spend all that extra time? We've actually been thinking about it. I think the opposite way is get started with cross-platform. And if we do see success with one or the other, basically fork it off. Maybe the Android app might continue to be the Flutter one because it's more material design and all that anyway. It's all baked in. Whereas the iOS one, we may fork off and start writing a native one in Swift at some point. 
but that requires more developers and all that too. So. Yeah, that's true. That's a good way to look at it. Everything takes time. So there's no magic pill that you can take with any of this, right? So you have to think of the pros and cons. What is the skill set of your existing team? I was talking with someone recently who said, well, I have a lot of React developers on my team, so I could just throw them into the React Native project. Maybe. But then, like, are they going to be able to, like, understand how to build an Xcode or Android Studio and fix all those issues that come up with just building native apps in general? That's going to take them a lot of time. So what is important for your long-term success of the app? Because everything has maintenance costs. When people ask me, like, do I go native or cross-platform? I would be willing to bet if you actually tracked it in two separate teams that it would take you the same amount of time at the end of the day, especially when you look long-term horizon if an app is successful. Yeah, okay, you can do cross-platform and get both platforms out the door maybe fairly quickly for some simple apps. But then what happens if it explodes overnight? What is the cost? Of? Now, here's an interesting thing that I always consider when I'm working on my apps. So I worked with uh, DevRel at Google for a bunch of years. And so I would sit in on a lot of these calls with Apple and then I would take a lot of the direction and things that I learned and we would try to put it in Google products. And why would we do that? So Apple really likes when folks integrate things that are in their platform, in their apps, and then they will then feature them in the store. They're never going to feature an app that looks like material design. They're never going to feature an app that doesn't take advantage of the platform. A lot of these cross-platform things are behind the curve. It takes them a long time to like support things. When we were doing home screen widgets a bunch of years ago, it wasn't available in Flutter. Couldn't be done in the apps that were built in Flutter in Google. It took them like a year to get it out. But when we did it, we got promotion from Apple in the App Store. So if you have like an interesting app, what you should really be doing is focusing on the things that make the platform awesome, because then that'll get you attention. So that you should also factor that. Just thinking like, oh, I need to have Android and iOS because I need to have the most users is not really the best way to look at it. You should look at everything like, can I get attention from Apple or Google? And where are my users? And who's more willing to pay for apps? I think on the Android side, most people expect free apps or ad-supported apps, right? And so on iOS, people are willing to pay and they're willing to pay more. So if you're looking to prove a concept and you want people to pay and support a company, always do that. One of my personal apps is an app for children with special needs. I've had it for many, many years. I've supported it. And people email me every now and then, are you bringing it to Android? And I just do some quick check to see. It's like way too many devices, tablet devices to support, and there's not enough demand on Android. What do I do? I just made a Mac desktop version of it. So that way, like at least people that have Macintosh desktops and not have an iPad or an iPhone or something can use it. And then I've also considered going to the web to make it cross-platform, but all the money is on iOS because it's much simpler to develop for. How did you determine that there wasn't enough demand in Android? What I would do is I would look at the device sales, the tablet usages, what the OS versions were on. I think at the time when I was looking at the Kindle Fire was the most popular Android tablet. And so that would mean that I would have to build for most of theirs. For my particular use case, yeah, for my particular niche, educational usage. Like the Android tablets were not really selling at all. Like iPads were really big in education, and that's what most people had. So it didn't make sense for me to do that. Now, the Microsoft Surface tablet, on the other hand, has actually got really good saturation. So if you're doing like a tablet app for like maybe a business application, certainly you can look at that particular platform. But you really got to look for what your users are doing. That's really important. So like I disagree when people say I need to do it on both. Yeah. One of the reasons why at least we think we need to be an Android is on iOS, 
Apple just commands lion market share in podcasts because the app comes pre-installed. I mean, in our opinion, the UX is almost like unusable if you subscribe to many podcasts. But for many people, it's just fine. Like if you want to listen to some true crime show in sequence, it just works for you. If you want to do some research, uh, well, good luck. And they also have a bunch of other good apps like Overcast, for example, is for iOS only that people pay for. There are a couple of others that are iOS only. But then you go into Android, most of the apps are actually pretty bad. And then Google is deprecating Google Podcasts. And they are pushing people off to YouTube music, which is going to be the same as sort of Spotify that bundles uh, music and podcasts together. Uh, many people don't like that experience because they just want to have their music and podcast separate. So it sounds like there is just more motion going in the Android space. So there is potentially also some land for grab there with Google Podcasts being deprecated, yeah. Again, I think it comes down to are people willing to pay more on the Android side or not. So far, it has seemed like no. iOS is predominantly where people pay for apps and all that. And but maybe we can cover the top with ads. Yeah, another way to look at this, right, uh, is there's nothing wrong with the cross-platform technologies as a whole. Like it's a means to an end. There's different tools for building all kinds of things. But my advice would be to someone like, if you're really jonesing to do a Flutter app, just pick one and platform, get it right on there. And then you can always bring it to the other. Don't do both at the same time. If you're doing a Flutter app and you want to do Android first, focus on Android, get it right, launch it, and then learn from that and then bring it to the iOS by just doing it. Spending the time on both. It's a huge time sink when you're a startup trying to like figure out where you kind of fit in the world. Yeah, I think we sort of have gone that path because third person in our company, we are a three-person company right now, she predominantly uses uh, Android. She only uses Android. <laughs> only uses Android, yeah. So until she came to join us, we were not really focusing on deploying to Android because we are not primarily Android users anyway. Because the app was primarily tested and made to work well on iOS. And then we started basically figuring out how do we make this, yeah. That's a great strategy. I would agree with that. I feel like you're using your resources right. And then if you're spending your time on iOS first or whatever one you pick first, and then you're bringing it over and then learning there. And then also you may find out that the different platforms will have different features that you want to add. I think it's fine, but I have worked on both native and cross-platform before. I, as an engineer, prefer working native. I think it's just cooler. I like tinkering with all the new stuff too. So that's just a personal opinion like you're held to the minimum common denominator if you're in a cross-platform app. Some of the new features that Apple is going to bring in, you're not going to be able to integrate with it quickly. Yeah, and then if there's any bugs in the platform when the new platforms come out, you got to deal with those. That could be a headache at times. You just have to weigh the pros and cons of what you're willing to deal with. But at the end of the day, you're creating a product for users. As long as you continue to build for the user, it doesn't matter what platform you choose. Yeah, let's go to the next step of the app You've built the app. Now it's time to get it into the hands of users. So let's talk about the um, Google and Apple publication process to Google Play and to Apple App Store. What does it like to actually get an app to the end users? Way back in the day, app reviews to take up to two weeks, which was crazy. If they found a bug when they were testing it, like you would have to turn it around pretty quickly and get them to review it. Google was never really the same. I feel like Google's release process has been highly influenced by Apple over the years. And Google still chooses to have a much more automated review process than Apple does. What's the most likely to run into roadblocks along the way? That's shipping on Apple. 
but it makes complete sense to me. You don't see spammy apps in the App Store. You don't see a lot of these phishing apps or like apps that are going to force you to install things you don't want to do, like adware, I guess, or spamware, whatever you want to call it. So you don't see those in the App Store, really, because they're looking for it and they're making sure that the apps are basically safe for the user. So you can download just about anything. Yes, stuff does get through Apple every now and then and it gets in the news and they make it like every app is like that. But that's not true. In the Android world, there is a ridiculous amount of apps that are not what they intend to be. I appreciate that Apple has the review process and does the diligence. Now with that is gonna come a lot of problems, right? So if you're not following the rules or you don't read the App Store review guidelines, which have kind of evolved over time, you may find yourself with rejections and then have frustrating time getting things out the door. I guess the biggest topic of late is in-app purchase and Apple's 30% tax, so to speak which I have lots of opinions on if you'd like me to share. <laughs> it's actually a tax on top of the government tax too, right? <laughs> so it's like you're getting double taxed by a private entity. Yeah. Well, Apple is the government in the App Store, so. Yeah, so, so yeah, there has been a lot of bashing of Apple by folks like Jason Fried and David Heimer Heisenstein from 37signals. They have this email app and calendar app. Hey, you just face, I think, with the login screen, you have to log in and then you get access to the backend. Similar like Slack or Netflix, you can't create an account on iOS. You create an account on desktop Desktop, and then you can log in and use it as a client. So, and 37 signals folks, Apple rejected them and they were like, this is unfair. Others can do that. Why can't we? Apple doesn't follow their own rules. It was a very interesting thing to follow. Well, most people, at least who express their opinion publicly, they would side with the developers because like, yeah, 30% is unfair. Why they do that? But I know you have a different opinion on this. So I do. I'll start with the, my opinion on the, the 30% thing. So first off, I've built my entire career off of Apple. So if Apple never came out with the App Store, I probably wouldn't be standing here now talking with you guys about building applications. That opportunity that Apple presented by creating that developer ecosystem and the concept of the App Store has like given me a career. So I have nothing bad to say about that. I'm grateful that they invested the resources and made that happen because it's never been done before. Other folks have tried. There's been like BlackBerry App Stores, Microsoft App Stores, and never really took off. Apple did it right. So I'm okay paying the 30% tax or fee on it. But on the Apple side, if you have less than a million dollars of revenue across all of your owned developer accounts, it's 15% if you apply for it. So they give you at least an opportunity to grow your business and do it. But once you hit a million across all your accounts, you have to pay the 30%. I didn't know you have to apply for it specifically. Isn't that automatic? You apply for it, but it's pretty easy. You just have to basically assert all of the accounts that you have, you apply and they get back to you in a couple of days. That's what I recommend everyone do. You just have to go in there and list all the developer accounts because sometimes people own multiple apps they want to make sure that collectively you're not doing over a million dollars. So the way that I look at the 30% is like, okay, if you've read in the news lately in the legal deposition of the App Store case in the news, there was like a mention that Apple's gross margin is like 70 something percent in the App Store. Now, the way I look at the 30% tax is like, would you be willing to take 10% profit or gross profit on your app if you were building a product? Probably not. After expenses and paying yourself and growing, could you make money off of a gross margin of 10%? Probably not unless you're doing insane volume. So from a business standpoint, 30% as like a gross margin is actually pretty decent. In medical and other technology and all this stuff, their margins are much higher. The airline industry is like a 70% gross margin. You don't see them complaining like, oh, they're making too much money. 
or there's a lot of talk with healthcare and drugs. Okay, they make a lot of profit margin, but then it becomes generic over time and stuff like that. But like for Apple to take a 30% tax, I'm more than happy to give it to them because A, they continue to invest in the ecosystem. B, it gives them the incentive to keep making the app store better and building cool features. And they also bring the users. It doesn't matter to me. Where I will fault Apple is prior to the App Store or iTunes in general, having the 99 cent or dollar 99 cent download concept, you used to pay a lot for music, you used to pay a lot for software. And so they trained people that software and apps in general is only worth a buck or two. And so what ended up happening is it became much harder to earn a living later in the game as like the app store is growing. So early on when there weren't a lot of apps, people would download your apps in millions. You had a flashlight app, you can make hundreds of thousands of dollars. Today, a few years in, probably couldn't make that kind of money. So even with my own personal experience building some apps really early, I made really good money in the beginning. And then as things started to taper off and it became more saturated in the market, I wasn't making as much money for that one-time fee. So what did I do? I switched the subscription model and then charge an annual fee or a monthly fee, users got really upset because they're like, the app used to be 10 bucks or whatever it was. And then I would respond to them, well, okay, well, I have to compensate my time. I've got expenses for cloud computing costs and stuff like that. I can't do the low one-time fee. So if I'm gonna fault Apple for anything, it's for creating that appearance that software should be free, especially when they made Mac OS free and that used to be $100, then it went down to $29 for a while and then it's free. It's like they devalue what we bring to the table sometimes. So that's the only part that I would fault Apple on there. But otherwise, I'm happy to pay the 30% all day long. I'm curious what you would say to this uh, counter argument. First of all, I fully agree that you need to be compensated for what they do. Where I find challenging is the Spotify versus Apple case, where both companies offer the same product, so Apple Music and Spotify. And to be on the Apple platform, Spotify has to either take less profit home or charge users 30% more. So that feels anti-competitive. I still think Spotify should pay something to Apple. It can be entirely free, but like 30% is very significant, especially for a big player like Spotify. So what do you think about that part where Apple actually offers, they can offer the same product as other companies, but 30% cheaper because they don't have to pay their own tax? Well, I mean, there's still costs involved. It's still a business. And so they're giving it away for free. So they got to have the money from somewhere to invest in these apps. I mean, like, yeah, you're paying a monthly fee for Apple Music and that goes towards development. And sure, maybe they're avoiding the 30% and want to be competitive. But at the end of the day, we've always been competing with Apple apps. And yes, Apple will then go in for a while. When I worked at Google, you know, I was help out the Google Translate team a lot. And then Apple came out with their own Translate app. Now, their Translate app was a lot better. It had a lot more features to it. It was more tightly coupled in the operating system than what Google did. Google didn't invest in their app. There were other third-party apps that were way better than Google Translate at the time. And Apple just came in and made that experience. Now, had other developers created an awesome experience and really paid attention to the Apple platform, would they have done it? I don't know. Yes, there are times where Apple comes in and competes with us third-party developers, and then it can take away some of our market share of our apps. But I think, if anything, that should try push us to like build better products. We can never get lazy when we're building software because we're always going to have competition. So in my opinion, it's just like you need to have that competition to improve things. I give a really good example of like my thinking is on competition. So prior to Apple Pay coming out, NFC payments were a thing. Google Wallet was a thing. You can always pay with Android. That was around forever. 
But when Apple Pay came out and made it a thing, everybody benefited from that because then all of these merchants were converting their terminals over to support NFC payments. And now you can use Android or iOS. And that's really because of Apple. So Apple has a lot of influence in things. So if they're creating an app and you can find a problem with an app that they make and you build a product that provides a better user experience or more value for that user, you're going to win. Now, maybe Apple will copy it one day. Okay, but that's just life. That's how this works. You can't be sitting there not innovating and building out your product. It's just how it works. So I have no problem with it. And I tend to think that it's not that it's unfair. This is just business. And you're always going to have competition. And you need to constantly be improving your app. Spotify is a great app, but there are definitely features they do not have that I would love to see. Apple versus Spotify reminds me of some of the Amazon marketplace versus its merchants, where Amazon opened up the platform for people to sell stuff. And then, well, supposedly, so what people say is like they monitor what merchants sell. So they see what sells well on marketplace and then they can create an Amazon basics brand that just undercuts the price by a significant percentage. And also, you know, obviously the merchants have to pay to Amazon to be on the marketplace. So Amazon kind of watches what works and builds a copycat product. The same thing happened on AWS too, with like they would do the open source thing as a service and then they just build their own. I think it was Mongo that it happened to. Apple Music came out after Spotify. So you could also make a similar case that Apple looked, okay, hey, it works pretty well for Spotify. <laughs> Why don't we make the same feature as Spotify has, bundle it with the OS, and also charge 30% less because we don't have to pay ourselves. That's true, but also like big companies move slower. So like there's always going to be opportunity to improve things. So Amazon competes with its resellers because they look at the data and they build Amazon basics. Again, it's just being in business, it's competition. It also helps drive prices down across the board for people, which technically is good. Costco does the same thing. They'll have brand name on the shelf and then they go and do a generic. Now with the Kirkland Signature brand, but they're using those companies to do it. So when you see Amazon basics, it's not Amazon actually making the product. They're probably going to the person that's selling the most anyway and buying 10 times the volume. You know, it looks like these companies are kicking the little guy out and hurting their business. My dad is a sales rep in New York City in the photo industry, and he's been hurt by Amazon, but he's also been helped by Amazon. But what he's learned is that he has to pay very close attention to how he does business on Amazon. Because again, like you have to be competitive in this environment and there are certain ways to do things. You can't just post a product and just assume that it's going to last years and years and years of profits coming in. Eventually, somebody is going to go and create a better product. Now, same thing with software physical products, anything it is, as long as you are continuing to deliver value and deliver really good products, you will continue to sell stuff and you won't have to worry about competition. That's the thing. Look at like Chick-fil-A, right? And all of these other restaurants, the average Chick-fil-A, if I understand correctly, does about $8 million a year in sales. But other fast food restaurants do not do that. Does Chick-fil-A have a humongous menu? No, it's very tight. They make the best chicken sandwich. Maybe someone can argue the Popeyes or someone else is better, right? But they make a darn good chicken sandwich and they do it really well. And they are outselling many other fast food restaurants. That's how it is. You don't see them go and say, oh, we got to go and add crazy burgers and all kinds of stuff. They don't need to build a Big Mac, so to speak. They just keep doing what they're doing and people continue to return. I wanted to explore this one more topic we had in here. And you mentioned enterprises move slower. Can you tell us a little bit about, you've built lots of apps inside Google. How does that process go? How do you figure this out? How do release management and all that? Yeah. 
I feel like I was an anomaly inside of Google. I was known for getting stuff done. That's what I really liked doing. Again, like I was very entrepreneurial coming in. And another thing is, is I'm a little more extroverted as an engineer. So I'm okay interacting with people. I also have a sales background, which maybe is something we can talk about too. With my sales background, I'm okay with engaging people and I understand relationships and building relationships to like get what you want out of stuff. And I also, when I first joined Google, I'm sorry to go on a little tangent here, but like this is important for like how to get things done in these big companies. So when I first joined Google, they had this like concept of like Google University, so to speak. And I took all of the courses over the like first year or two. One of them was a negotiating class with uh, Stuart Diamond. Oh, I took his class in person at Wharton. Oh, he's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He used to come to Google and then they killed the contract, but like he used to come. So I took his class and I learned how to really negotiate at Google. And I then applied it to everything I did. So I used his method and some other methods that I learned over time to get the products that I was working on out the door. So typically what would happen is you go and work through all this product and you get tons of red tape at these big companies. It could be like, I want to see the data to prove that this is valuable to users. And like, well, we don't have any. It's a brand new feature or something like that. They wouldn't just go and say, okay, let's go take a risk and see if users like it. We This has been on the list of things to do, or this is something Apple asked for, or this is really good for the Android ecosystem or Google. Whatever it was, you'd always hit red tape, even if it was the greatest idea in the world. And so my job basically up until the time when I got laid off was cutting through the red tape. And that's what I got really good at. I was really not engineering that much. I was managing my team. I was coming up with product ideas, getting the team to execute on them, motivating the team, and then getting it out the door. I had like basically five teams, five small teams that were working across different disciplines. What I would just basically do is anytime they would hit a blocker, maybe some TL was taking too long on a code review or something like that, I would step in and help them get over the hurdle or whatever it was, because that happened all the time. They were like, why are you doing this? Or this is this way or this is that way. So you have to get really good at understanding what that other person's position is. And so in the big companies, especially Google, it's risk. Will this look bad on me if this goes bad? And so they were very, very hesitant to take any risk whatsoever, executives up and down the line. And then it was also a maintenance thing. They didn't want to have to be responsible for more work because everyone felt like they had too much on their plate as it was. So there was one time we were trying to get a feature out and they said, well, this feature will only benefit 0.01% of Gmail users. And they're like, okay, cool, but that's still a lot. He's like, yeah, but it's not enough that it's going to be worth my effort in this thing. I'm like, well, someone down the chain has approved it and we're going to do it. You have to work that out. So it is very hard to ship at these companies. It was much easier to ship at Amazon. Actually, in my eight years at Google and two years at Amazon, I think I shipped almost the same amount of products. <laughs> it was much easier to do things there. I don't know how other companies are, but at Google, it was incredible. But I did get really good at being willing to like go to that stakeholder that could have been all the way to a VP and say, this is why I think we should do this. Here's the, one of the craziest things that we had to do. So my team built the first YouTube Music Watch app. We wanted to bring Watch apps across Google because we wanted to build out the ecosystem. And obviously, watches were being used everywhere. Apple Watches were everywhere. So we're like, hey, let's start building apps. At the time, we had really poorly executed on them. YouTube Music was willing to work with us, but we also wanted to build it in Swift UI because previously building watches was pretty crummy because it had like these like storyboards and stuff like that. It was not a lot of fun. So we're like, we can do a complete custom watch app in Swift UI. So we got the team on board. 
But then the folks at YouTube caught wind that we were doing Swift UI and it was a banned language. Swift even was a banned language within YouTube. Okay. So we engineered the app, designed it and engineered it and had it complete in between six to eight weeks. It took us six weeks to get the VP of YouTube to agree to let us use Swift or Swift UI in this watch app that we were building for YouTube, completely isolated. There was no risk involved at all. We said that we would maintain it. We had to make a presentation and go through the pros and cons and why we chose this technology and all that stuff. It was crazy. It was a complete waste of time. There were five people working on this. And then we finally got it over the top, but it was just absolutely crazy that we had to go through this. It just made absolutely no sense. Long time back, I remember Google had three or four languages and those were the only things you could ever develop anything in. I worked on the first Swift app at Google. I'll tell you this. When I first joined Google, I was hired to work on the Google Meet app. That was what they wanted me to work on. So I said, I'll take the offer as long as you let me do Swift. The director that was interviewing me at the time said, I don't know what that is, but okay, whatever you want to do. So I come in here, I come to Google and my first or second weekend, I'm trying to set up a Swift project and I'm like using this thing called Blaze or Basil or whatever. Oh, we're using something else. I forget what it was, but I was like fumbling to get it set up because it turns out Swift wasn't really supported within Google infrastructure. So I sent an email out to like the iOS dev group in Google. I said, hey, you know, I'm new, I'm doing a Swift app anyone have any pointers? Because I can't get this thing to work or whatever. And immediately I'm bombarded. Oh, we're not allowed to do Swift here. You can't do that. Don't do that. Two people took me out to lunch to tell me that I'm doing the wrong thing and don't ever try. Another guy had a bunch of other meetings with high level folks there. And they were like, Henry, no, just, nope, can't do that. Nope. And I said, okay, great. Thanks. I'm doing it anyway. So I figured it out. And it turns out that would ended up being the first Swift app at Google. We got out the door. Six months later, they defragged it. I left the project and then went to do something else. But then they did take that code base and they shipped, eventually shipped it out the door, which was cool. And then that was like a catalyst for bringing Swift across Google. The infrastructure got better. Other people got on board. But was I like a pioneer? No, but I just went in there thinking like, this is absolutely crazy. Swift was becoming a thing. And like, how do you recruit really good engineers if you're not going to support the latest and greatest? That was a really, really silly decision. And the fact that people jumped on me was nuts. Yeah, and this also is true when Google, I will not name it specific product, but when they ship an SDK for mobile and they force iOS developers into non-Swift, I don't even remember what the language was. And uh, yeah, DevRel has been talking for months and years, like, well, everybody's moving to Swift. It's like, no, 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 they have to use this language or we don't have resources or whatever. That was so sad. Part of Google's DNA is to force its own ways of doing things onto the developers who develop on the platform. Because it's the best way to do it. Yeah, because there's only one way to do the thing, yeah. Seriously, don't get me wrong. I learned a ton at Google. But what I also learned was that if I kept at it, at least in big tech, following using all their tools and infrastructure and just getting in line and just doing my thing, I would be a dinosaur. So I would work on my own projects on the weekends just to keep myself relevant. So it was very important. That's true at Amazon, too. We struggled for years trying to get Ruby and Ruby on Rails to be used at Amazon. This is like five years after Ruby is everywhere. Eventually, we got it all working and then it thrived, right? And then the whole company shifted to like just use Ruby on Rails for internal apps for everything as the default. Big companies tend to stay behind. My first job was at a bank. And there, it was like, we're struggling to adopt Java 15 years after Java is everywhere. So it's all the cost and benefit from the company's perspective at the highest levels. So can you call it in COBOL? 
Is this what they're saying? <laughs> <laughs> no. At the end of the day, it's hard being a technical leader for a bunch of years. Like you have to weigh the pros and cons and you have to make the right decision. But at the same time, you're going to have to attract talent. So you have to find ways to do things more modern. Otherwise, you're going to never attract the talent you need. That's really what it boils down to. And like you said, as a developer, it's very important when you're inside these big companies to keep up with what's happening outside in the world and basically hone your craft and all that on the side. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very important. Yeah, cool. So we want to briefly talk about your company. So Studio Init, you do development for other people, is it right? Absolutely, yep. So what Studio Init does is basically we bring all of our collective experience, I have five partners, and we each have a different area of expertise. And so what we do is we've been partnering a lot with either non-technical founders or just like technical founders that need some of our expertise to like get their either MVP or get their first version out the door or come in and use something like a mobile app or whatever it might be special, our specialty. We've partnered with a lot of different startups at different stages, and it's been a lot of fun. Why do we gravitate more towards startups or just any businesses that have a new need? It's because we've always been very zero to one focused. It's like three to six month projects because that's all you really need to get something off the ground and out the door. And we're very good at that. And I think I've taken a lot of my ability to just cut through the baloney and get like a really tight scope that would delight users and get it out the door. So we've been helping a lot of folks with that. We're not like a agency where you just give us a list of requirements and we build it and then we give it back to you. We're not like an offshoring or nearshore company. We're just a bunch of ex-Googlers that love doing this work. So we uh, like to do that whole zero to one exercise. As part of building the app, do you also train the startup or the companies, their employees to like basically take it on afterwards? So we have to, because when we're done, they're going to have ideally no one. So we'll have these arrangements where we'll continue to do maintenance. And while I would love to work with all of our clients for five, 10 years, it's not realistic. So we'll help them transition. And I've done it before. I mean, I've built plenty of teams in the past where like I can help them find their first hire and then build the company out, make sure that you're finding that technical co-founder or whoever you want to work with has got the right skills that you need to build out your company. Because it's like your first couple hires are very important. Yeah, we definitely help folks out with that. But it's very cool. We do end to end. So we can start from the research, the product, the design, the engineering, get it out the door. And we're looking to add marketing in the near future. There's like a whole end to end need that I think we like to address in the market. Nice. So I'm curious, when you first got started, so you were let go from Google in a couple of weeks, you started the company. How did you get your first customers? I was fortunate enough that when my post went viral, I got a bunch of leads out of that. But I think if you just take out, let's say, luck that I had with going viral, is that you really, as a founder, whether you're technical or not, you have to get yourself out there and you have to spend your time on selling. So I think that from the start, maybe 80% of my time has been spent on selling and, and developing relationships to bring in the business. If I didn't do that, then we wouldn't be where we are today, despite our talent. So that's what I do. It's all cold outreach. We don't really have that much money to spend on ads, but I also think ads is useless because it's just spanning everywhere. You're not targeting very well. So I've just done cold outreach. I've networked with founders, used my own connections, but you have to be willing to be outgoing and put yourself out there and reach out to people, pick up the phone, send an email, whatever it is to be successful. So that's what I've just been doing for the last year. So I'm curious if you can share maybe an example of a cold outreach. How do you do this? Do you send a DM? Do you send an email? Where do you get the email from? What kind of uh, pitch you use? Yeah, if you can maybe give us some more of the tactics here. 
Sure. So traditional emails is always trying to close the sale or DM or an email close the sale in the first run, and that's the wrong way to approach it. What I'll do is I'll buy lists of founders or buy lists of whatever target that I'm going after. Maybe it's CTOs or something like that. I'll buy a list of people. I'll then go through it, and then I'll send an email to them with an introduction of who I am. And I keep it short and sweet. I'm like, I'm not going to waste your time. I'm an ex-Googler with a, these set of skills. Do you have a need for my skills? And if they say yes or no, great. I just keep it very simple. I don't go and say, I have worked on all these projects and you should hire me. Click here to schedule time on my calendar and call me today. And this is my pricing rate and I do X, Y, Z. I don't do any of that because that's just noise. People don't have the time for it. So I just keep it very simple. It's like, I have these skills. I'm looking for work. Would you be interested in having a conversation? Leave it to that. Very simple. Same thing with when you're doing voicemails. It's like that. I don't go into this long spiel. It's just very short and sweet. But I do spend some time targeting people, and then I'll experiment with different groups. Maybe it's like non-technical co-founders, or maybe it's like CTOs that maybe don't have a specialty. I'll try to buy lists of people or find groups of people that may fit a target, maybe ex-Googlers or something like that, right? Because there's a familiarity there. So that's how I approach it. Where do you buy the lists of emails from? So there's lots of services you can use. LinkedIn has a tool called Sales Navigator where you can create lead lists. Apollo, I've been using a service called Apollo. They have lead lists that you can buy in there. There's also third-party brokers that like can go on Upwork usually and like find people with lists or just make a request of what lists you're looking for. Like I'm looking for a list of founders. There's also, I think it's like TechCrunch or someone has a service that you can buy that has lists of like startups if you're, that's the area that you're focused in. But basically it's like they're available anywhere. So you just go through and you get these lists and some of them could be crummy. Another thing you can do is also just have someone create the list for you. So you have like a virtual assistant go through and find all the people and create a list of emails and phone numbers for you. Okay. And do you actually craft emails uh, personally or you use some automations to send? Oh no, it's all me. Yeah, automation is not good at the short and sweet. You can tell when people are using GPT to reach out to you. So quick question before we wrap it up. Are most companies that are working with Studio in it? Are they venture funded? How do they pay you, basically? It varies, but it's all paid. So right now, we're trying to recover from having big salaries to like basically nothing. We've been using our severance as like our seed fund to get ourselves going. So all of the work that we do is fee-based right now. And I think we're priced pretty competitively because we're trying to grow and build the business out. And we're starting to hire some employees, which is great. And we've been very fortunate to have that. But the long-term vision is that we're going to hopefully build up the studio big enough that it can then support us to then branch off and start doing incubation. So the idea is that we become like that startup incubator. So like we can't always think of the great ideas. So we'll like probably partner with people that have really good ideas that need that execution help. So that's the long-term vision, but we're not able to do any equity stuff now. I get that question a lot. Great, great, yeah. So Henry, that's been great conversation. To close this off, we always ask our guests to recommend a book or a podcast, kind of some piece of information, long form information, I guess, uh, that you can recommend to people. Sure. I would say focusing on the leadership aspect, because that's where I see most engineers and founders struggle. The book that I would always recommend to like a new founder is called Permission to Screw Up by Kristen Hadid. That was a very eye-opening book for me. It turns out I was a really crummy leader early on. I was a jerk to work with. When someone finally had the courage to tell me that, I remember 
remember finding that book and reading it. And Kristen went through a lot of the same struggles that I did as a leader. And I think it's like reading her stories and understanding that it's totally okay to have made mistakes. And as long as you learn from them and recover, that that was a very, very good book. And it had a lot of hidden gems in there. So that's a book I usually recommend to folks because it's like we're very technical people generally. Leadership is the one area we don't focus on. That's where I start. Also, there's a book called Crucial Conversations, really like that one, because usually people are afraid to confront others, and that's very helpful. We also mentioned the negotiating book, Stuart Diamond's book, and then I would also say the One Minute Manager series. That's always been cool and helpful, short and sweet. So I tend to like those books to help me along. I think they've been very valuable. Yeah, the Stuart Diamond's book is called Getting More. I love that book. So actually, I'm curious. So you said somebody told you that you were a jerk. How did that conversation go? Did they just... Oh. <laughs> what did they actually say? I was having a one-on-one with someone, and I think they gave me like a poor review or something like that, and we were walking around. I was like, what are you talking about? I'm awesome. I'm the greatest engineer ever. Why would you give me a poor rating? And then they finally turned me and said, Henry, do you realize that nobody likes working with you? And I'm like... What? <laughs> I was like, I don't get it. Can you just explain? He started going through all the things like they created a bubble around me because I was very, very high performer. So they didn't want to discourage me. It was just a whole management breakdown from the top. Pretty typical of what you'll see. Well, where the managers will just isolate people and just like, don't worry about Henry. I'll take care of him instead of going and say, Henry, you're a jerk. So finally, someone had the courage to tell me that. And I completely turned it around. I went on an apology tour to everyone I ever worked with. And I apologized for being a jerk. That was very interesting conversations. And then I just started working on my Myself. That was when I got Kristen's book and a whole bunch of other stuff. I got a coach. I've been working with my coach, Jonathan Aronson. He's awesome. And it just really helped me. And it really improved my career. Instantly, once I did that, I started getting promoted more often. Turns out that being a good leader and a good person to work with is actually very good for your career. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for being a very good person on our podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. We really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, this is great. Wonderful. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you so much.